Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. The OMA is out with a five-point plan to improve health care in Ontario. Hamilton's garbage collection rules are being tweaked. Justin Trudeau rearranges his inner circle. A film director offers his views on a tragic shooting that has rocked Hollywood. Hamilton business icon Ron Foxcroft talks to us about his new book. And the winter forecast is out, and you may not like what you hear. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario Medical Association has released a five-point plan to tackle the pandemic backlog and provide better health care. And here to chat about it is Dr. Adam Kassam. He's the president of the Ontario Medical Association. Doctor, how are you? Mishy, good morning. Um, The OMA's top priorities are reducing patient wait times, expanding mental health addiction and home care services, preparing for the next pandemic, strengthening public health units, and assigning a linked team of healthcare providers to every patient. How did you come up with these top five? Absolutely. So yesterday, we were actually very excited to go to Queen's Park and deliver our platform, which is called Prescription for Ontario. And it's outlined the five priorities that you just described. And we delivered this to all party leaders in order to make sure that all parties uh, have an understanding of uh, what our recommendations are for a future healthcare system here in Ontario, and we're encouraged that hopefully they will adopt all of our recommendations. But we came to these recommendations actually through the largest consultation process in the 140-year history of our organization. It included 8,000 Ontarians from across 600 communities in the province. It included 110 healthcare stakeholder groups like nurses, uh, pharmacists, and other group associations, as well as 1,600 doctors. And this is how we came to this uh, distillation of five key pillars that we believe are uh, require our immediate attention for the future. I would suggest that reducing patient wait times is probably the biggest item on this list. It, it, it's probably or on this list. It probably uh, requires the most heavy lifting. How do we do that? How do we reduce patient wait times in this province? So right now there are 20 million points of care that have been delayed as the COVID-19. So that's someone's hip or knee replacement that's gone delayed. It's someone's cataract surgery that's gone delayed. It's someone's uh, colonoscopy or mammogram or cancer screening that's gone delayed. And so this, the sheer magnitude of this uh, this backlog and the, this, the growing wait times is significant. And we have a, um, a, a 10, 10, we have 10 ideas where we can actually address some of this backlog. Obviously, this has to do a little bit with uh, the, back, the, the doctor shortage that currently exists and has frankly existed for quite some time. And so the concept of health human resource strategies for the future, which include um, not only stemming the tide of burnout right now in the profession, what three quarters of physicians over the past year have, have described some level of burnout, but also figuring out a strategy for domestically growing our physician workforce and health human resource workforce, as well as potentially a global strategy for this as well. Is the biggest part of this topic uh, in terms of wait times the funding portion of it? Well, we, we know that the, uh, the Ford government actually uh, contributed or started to contribute to, uh, to funding uh, some of this backlog, which we're obviously uh, thankful and grateful for. But this is sort of something that needs uh, our attention even down the line. And so there's more to do. And so certainly um, funding goes hand in hand with this kind of strategy, but also developing a collaborative approach for transformation is something that we're uh, asking and calling for in this prescription for Ontario. And that means coming together as a 
group, which includes uh, government and includes healthcare stakeholders like organizations, institutions, hospitals, clinics, and is and community providers as well. Dr. Adam Kassim is the president of the Ontario Medical Association, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Another uh, thing that I do want to point out is strengthening public health units. It seems kind of vague. What are some of the finer details within that uh, line item? Well, if we remember the start of this pandemic, which is now about a year and a half ago, uh, I remember my colleagues and I were going into the hospitals where we were being rationed PPE. So we were being rationed masks. I remember being handed a mask and saying, this is my mask for the next two days. Uh, you know, for a G7 country like ours, that's um, it's not, not acceptable, frankly. And we, we should have been ready for this one. we got to be ready for the next one. So that includes, for example, um, making sure that we have national stockpiles of PPE that are not only updated regularly, but then ultimately deployed when necessary. We also want, for example, uh, the need to have uh, an ability to, to create vaccine uh, here, here in, the, in the country and hopefully in the province of Ontario. And so domestic vaccine production for what is likely going to be a, a, um, a yearly event is going to be extremely crucial in our ability to combat diseases of this nature. And then finally, uh, when we think about public health units, we know that they need the adequate re- resourcing and funding and infrastructure, frankly, both uh, bricks and mortar, but also health human resources and digital infrastructure to make sure that we can actually protect the people of Ontario. Dr. Kassam, appreciate the time today, and uh, best of luck getting the uh, provincial political parties on board with your uh, thoughts and plans as well. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Adam Kassam is the president of the Ontario Medical Association. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton is offering some clarification to a story that emerged yesterday in regards to uh, waste collection in this city. Now, it was reported that residents would have to remove the lids from their waste containers before putting them out on the curb or face a $200 fine. And this was all in uh, regards uh, to helping waste collectors avoid injury and uh, enabling them to do their jobs more efficiently. But apparently, this isn't the whole story. So joining us to offer some clarification is Angela Story, the Director of Waste Management at the City of Hamilton, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Angela. Hi, Rick. How are you today? Not too bad yourself. Good, thank you. So what should our listeners know about this removable lids issue? Yeah, thanks very much, Rick. So uh, we have taken a a report to update a few spots in our bylaw to Public Works Committee last week. So today at uh, the council meeting, they'll be approving the updated bylaw. And the item related to the lids was, uh, in the past, we've always had a weight and a volume maximum for our garbage and our yard waste containers. And the update that we're putting through the bylaw uh, this week is related to a maximum height of 91 centimeters, a maximum diameter of 61 centimeters, and that the lids not be hinged so that they be able to be fully removed when the collectors arrive at the curb to pick up your can. So uh, residents can absolutely put their garbage out or their yard waste out with a lid on their container. We just want to make sure that it can be fully removed. Uh, when the collectors arrive to pick them up. So do all containers have to have a lid or can you still put out a container that's, you know, full or or half full uh, without a lid on it? Of course, people don't have to have a lid on their garbage when they put it out. Uh, Typically, people want to have a lid on their garbage if they live in an area where animals might like to get into their waste after they put it out at the curb on windy days. Uh, Sometimes litter escapes uh, at the top of a garbage can. So uh, the lid is there just to avoid 
that from happening. You mentioned windy days, and it seems like waste collection day in my neighborhood is always a windy day. And whether or not I have a lid on the container or not, or others do, those lids seem to find themselves down the street, (laughs) which is obviously a conundrum for many homeowners. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We always talk about wind tunnels, and there seems to be a lot of them in Hamilton area. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, in our discussion at Public Works Committee, not that we want the lids blowing down the street in any way. Uh, The hope is after the waste is emptied, things are placed back on the curb uh, the way that they were put out. Um, And we would rather have the lids and the containers sitting there on the curb than having the litter, uh, you know, blowing around down the streets, especially products and garbage now because we have green carts. uh, A lot of garbage is right So it's more likely that uh, garbage would blow away if it wasn't contained. So is the $200 fine still a thing? Yeah, so Rick, it's uh, any bylaw that we have in the city of Hamilton, if people offend it enough times, it would be uh, fine. And so it's actually a separate piece in the bylaw. And there's a number of items in there, uh, putting out bulk waste, you know, three days early, um, or, you know, earlier than your garbage day, putting out your garbage and not bringing it in if it was stickered, for example, um, garbage always being too heavy. So the fines are, uh, we have to submit our fine schedule off to the Ministry of the Attorney General. And so the Ministry of the Tur- Attorney General had asked us to update the paragraph in our bylaw in order to submit our uh, fine schedule to them. And we've always had a fine schedule with them. Uh, the City of Hamilton, we educate first. Uh, So we work with uh, residents and business owners if they have any issues with putting their waste out or how to properly sort it, et cetera. So we work with them, and if at some point we feel that we're unable to kind of make that change uh, in the way that it's being put out or not brought back in, et cetera, we would move that over to the bylaw group. And then bylaw would work with that resident or that business owner. And if at some point they feel that they're not making any uh, kind of forward movement with that uh, waste product, and then they would be able to assess that fine. Angela Story is our guest. She is the Director of Waste Management at the City of Hamilton. We're chatting about uh, Hamilton's removable lids, a waste collection issue, and there's some uh, clarification today on uh, uh, if it's a hinged lid, uh, a hinged lid, that's a no-go zone. We do know that uh, our green bins have hinged lids. Are those going to be changed, or are they okay? So, Rick, our green bins are collected using a tipping mechanism on the truck. So when the tipper picks up the green bin, the lid automatically opens in the correct way and empties the green bin contents into the waste collection vehicle. With garbage cans and yard waste cans, however, it is an actual waste collection operator who picks up the can and tips it into the back of the truck. So if the garbage can is too tall, or if the hinged lid is there, it just in the tipping motion that the collector does, the lid kind of flaps around, some garbage could be, um, you know, trapped in it, etc. So um, it's just to be able to fully have the waste uh, be able to go into the truck, not be left in, not to be left in the can, and also that the uh, the lid might not clap back onto that collector when when they're emptying the garbage. Makes a lot of sense. So this is going to be uh, debated and voted on later on today. Yes, that's correct. It's uh, it's just part of the minutes uh, going to city council today. Uh, we actually discussed it last Monday at public works committee. So probably have a short discussion about it today just to make sure everybody's got the clarification, and uh, then our bylaw will. Be updated and come into effect after it's passed by council. Great stuff. Angela, appreciate the time today. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. Angela Story, Director of Waste Management at the City of Hamilton. So there you have it, their clarification that if you have a hinged 
lid on your uh, waste container, not your green bin, your waste container. Uh, you're going to have to get a new one, I guess, or just have a waste container that has a removable lid. You don't have to put it on the curb and remove the lid. The uh, waste collectors will still be doing that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I'm going to be reading the past reports regarding misconduct in the armed forces, as well as the recent independent review of the military justice system. I will be asking the department for an analysis of the recommendations that have already been implemented, as well as the ones that have not been. And I also hope to hear from as many of our women and men in uniform as possible. That is Canada's new Defence Minister Anita Anand, who was sworn in yesterday after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shuffled around his cabinet. She replaces Harjit Sajjan, who has been shuffled from the Defence Ministry to International Development after he was roundly criticized for his handling of sexual misconduct allegations in the top ranks of the military. That's one of the issues that we're going to be talking about on this segment of Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with Peter Grafe, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Peter, welcome to the show. How are you? Great, thanks. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a number of moves yesterday. Which one should be viewed as the most important one? Well, that's a good question. I mean, in some ways, uh, it's really a shuffling around of people who've been there for about six years. So, I mean, probably the one that uh, has the biggest sort of short-term impact is the decision to move uh, Stephen Gilbo into the minister, Ministry of, Ed, uh, of Environment uh, ahead of the latest climate negotiations uh, You know, on the one hand, uh, signaling, I think, that Mr. Trudeau wants to take this perhaps more seriously than he has, given Mr. Gilbo's past uh, uh, as as an important leader in the environmental movement, uh, but also shows a a willingness uh, on his part to take flack from Alberta, which has already come out, uh, the Premier of Alberta coming out to say that this is a worrying appointment. So, you know, I think it's a bit of a signal that Mr. Trudeau is not as afraid of... uh, some of the criticism you'll take from Alberta, maybe because Mr. Kenny is greatly weakened by the pandemic and is perhaps willing to, after six years, uh, take his promises to do something about climate change a bit more seriously. Stephen Gilbeau, uh leaves Canadian heritage for the environment portfolio. And here's a former environmentalist from Quebec who seems well suited for this important role. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously he's been criticized also within the environmental movement. But uh, again, I mean, a lot of the placing people in these roles is is signaling intentions of the government, and I think, uh, you know, this uh, seems to be signaling uh, a desire to do a bit more in this role than, uh, again, what we've seen in the past six years, which has been talking a good line, but actually achieving relatively little in terms of reducing emissions or showing any form of climate leadership. Ms. Anon is only the second female defense minister in Canadian history after Kim Campbell, who I think held the role for about six months or so. Can she change the culture in the Canadian Armed Forces, or is she basically being set up for failure? Uh, well, I mean, probably between those two. I mean, the culture in an armed forces uh, doesn't change in just, you know, a couple of days or a few weeks. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, uh, you know, the steps that she's uh, argued that she wishes to take probably will have a longer-term impact, particularly since I think uh, certain ranks within the armed forces realize the need to change as well. Um, you know, so there's, you know, likely uh, to be some changes, but, uh, you know, again, it's it's a multi-year process, uh, uh, you know, that's required. But again, I mean, the decision to appoint her seems to signal a desire on the Prime Minister's part uh, to make some progress here, although it's also a way of him getting rid of uh, the fact that he had his previous minister, 
uh, didn't seem to take this very seriously and was getting uh, you know significant criticism for that. We're speaking with Peter Grafe, po- a professor of political science at McMaster University, about uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's cabinet shuffle yesterday on Parliament Hill. Another major change is the health ministry. Patty Haidu is out as health minister. Jean-Yves Duclos is in as the health minister. Is that an admission of any sort of failure during the pandemic, or is this a reset now that we're in a new kind of reality with our new norm, so to speak? Uh, well, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, the health ministry federally doesn't do a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, at the end of the day, it's the provinces that carry the ball on, on, on health questions. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it signals a great deal. If anything, you know, Jean-Yves Duclos, who is felt to be a pretty consequential uh, minister. In some ways, it's a bit of a demotion into that role. It's not really clear what the the big uh, push will be. The only possible, you know, explanation here is that the government intends to do something around uh, long-term care, and and they're looking for someone who has the ability to deal with what's a pretty technical file when you get into the specifics of, you know, how how the, how it's funded, the different kinds of homes that there are, the public versus the private. Uh, it may be for that that we see uh, Duclos in that role. Trudeau's inner circle also includes MPs from Alberta and Atlantic Canada. Why was this important? Well, any federal cabinet in part is about uh, indicating that all parts of the country are represented. So to the extent that cabinet is a body which makes decisions about what the government's going to do, it's important uh, symbolically to have representation uh, you know, not just regionally, so from all parts of the country, and certainly adding, uh, you know, someone from Alberta has been important because in the last uh, last parliament, uh, Mr. Trudeau didn't have any Alberta or Saskatchewan MPs to pull from uh, to put in his cabinet, so he can claim a more representative cabinet. But, I mean, it comes right down even to regions within provinces, and so I suspect here in Hamilton people are, you know, looking at uh, Minister Tassie's, uh, uh, you know, reappointment to cabinet as, again, a signal that uh, the area is at the table. Uh, you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin here. We're chatting with Peter Grafe, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Let's uh, switch gears. We've got a couple minutes to talk about the Alberta referendum, uh, where we see that more than 60% of voters voted in favor of stopping equalization payments to other Canadian provinces. But at the end of the day, this really isn't going to go anywhere, is it? Uh, yeah, not much. Uh, I mean, the Supreme Court uh, has told us that uh, you know, when you have... Uh, you know, a partner to the, the confe- to confederation such as Alberta, you know, who, who holds a referendum and gets a, on a clear question and gets a clear answer, there's a duty to negotiate. So I suspect we will see Alberta requesting some negotiation of this uh, of this result, and uh, no doubt a willingness of the other provinces to meet. Uh, although probably, as you point out, probably not to change their views. So uh, you know, I, it would be expected, I think, that. Either the federal government or the Atlantic provinces would say that, well, we put equalization in the Constitution in 1982, but there were quid pro quos, including uh, uh, giving provinces power over uh, natural resource revenues. And so, uh, you know, is Alberta really willing to go back and uh, negotiate some of those compromises? So I suspect, you know, we'll have, uh, you know, meetings, maybe uh, a royal commission, who knows, uh, but some way ultimately to make it appear to Albertans that they're being taken seriously and presumably. You know, there's some 
attempt to try and deal with the unhappiness that uh, is evident in such a referendum. Uh, but I doubt it's going to lead to a change in the Constitution. Yeah, the the issue or the problem Alberta has is that they need seven other provinces to say, yeah, okay, and, and more than 50% of the population to uh, give it the thumbs up as well. So that's an uphill climb. Uh, one more for you, only got about a minute regarding the Alberta uh, referendum. The other part of it was daylight saving time. 50.1% said, no, we're fine with the way it is. 49.9% wanted it changed. Does this end the debate in other provinces? Uh, I think it certainly gives, uh, you know, uh, premiers who have better things to do <laughs> to discuss that, to, uh, uh, you know, to say, well, look, uh, it's been tried elsewhere and the people didn't want it. Uh, nevertheless, it seems to me over the past 15 years, there's been uh, a push for people to say, let's uh, explore the, the Saskatchewan option, if you like, of not having it. Um, but again, I, you know, I think it's probably something where we could do uh, a bit more with some with some study. I mean, people are fed up every year to lose an hour of sleep. Uh, I am as well. Uh, but you know, what are really the the, the bigger consequences in terms of uh, you know the difficulties of aligning with other jurisdictions? Uh, uh, you know, what does it actually mean in terms of health outcomes? Uh, I think we could have probably a a fuller discussion rather than just people ripping their shirts every year when their kids wake up too early or too late. <laughs> That's what I do. Uh, Peter, thanks for the time today. You're welcome. Peter Grafe is a political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hollywood still reeling from the tragic fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the movie set of Rust. By now you've heard that actor Alec Baldwin fired a prop gun that was handed to him on the movie set and while the gun contained a live round, production of the movie has now been halted. Stefano DeFray is a film director with New York-based Rosso Films International and has worked firsthand with prop guns on set. And he's currently filming a World War II movie called Subject A, focusing on veterans who served in the military. Stefano, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good morning. and glad to be with you guys. What an incredibly tragic story this is. What do you make of what happened on the set of Rust? Well, first of all, I just want to say to Elena, uh, Helena Hitchinson's family, um, just my condolences and just the thoughts with her. You know, sometimes with when these things happen, we often forget the victims. So the first thing I want to just say is is it's a sad moment for someone like that who, who died, who didn't need to die. M- my thoughts about what we were just talking about, what you brought up, is that many things had to go wrong in the chain of command. There are multiple things from the props master to the armory, who is the person who is in charge specifically of firearms, to the assistant director who has to make a call before handing a gun to an actor, this, in this case Alec Baldwin, and calling it a cold gun, meaning that's the film uh, industry's term for a gun that is safe to fire. There are many things that have to go wrong in that chain of command. So I'm, I'm, you know, we're all still finding out pieces, um, but but several things have to go wrong in that place, and we can talk about it in detail. Well, not only that, but you know, how does a live round make its way into a prop gun? So right now, again, I wanted to say this is all speculation. There mm-hmm. are some stories from the film sets that people were using the gun with actual bullets the night before and using it for target practice. That was an article that came out, I think it was in in The Hollywood Reporter, and then um, supported by The New York Times, that they had found extra bullets for the same pistol. That's the first thing. 
the second thing is that if you check and you're using blanks in a gun, you have to make sure that there is actually that there are actual blanks that there is no gunpowder and gunpowder weighs very different. It's, it's, it's packed in much heavier. So the person who is the armor and the props specialist would be making that check ahead of time. And they would also have to go through the process of making sure that that actually is a blank before handing it to the assistant director. Once the assistant director has that gun, it's also up to them then to check a third time because they're then making the call on set, bringing the gun to the set and handing it to the talent, this case Alec Baldwin, and telling him it's okay. It's safe to fire. It's a cold gun. So this case has, we, I'm, from, from what it looks like and from the, the different reports that are coming out this past week, it seems that there is more information that we don't yet have to finding out what occurred in New Mexico. Stefano DeFray is our guest. He is a film director with New York-based Rosso Films International. We're chatting about the uh, fatal shooting of a cinematographer on the movie set of Rust at the hand of uh, Alec Baldwin. This isn't the first time this has happened. Brandon Lee, the son of Bruce Lee, was killed by a bullet in a prop gun on a movie set in 1993. How did the rules change after that instance, and what rules are going to change now? It's a very, very good question. That was no doubt the question that was focused the most in the state of California. There was an investigation that lasted 10 years. But what they found out with this, with that case, I think is going to be a little bit different. What happened is that there were shards inside those guns. There were not actual bullets. And so in the case of Brandon Lee, they went through, the, the, the person who had used the gun actually had extra, sh- there were shards inside the, this, the mechanics of the gun that then fired these like very light shards, but because of the speed of them and there was some powder left in, it obviously uh, uh, injured him and then killed him. What happened in place was what should happen in place right now, that we had somebody that would come in like an armor who is, who is designated as a specialist in guns to also work with the prop master. You've got to remember, back in the 90s, there was not that level of, it, was just, it would just fall under the prop master's sort of guide, let's say. Um, there were more cases that helped and, and figure this out with, with also how ADs would handle that would double check, would be the triple check, the last check to making sure before calling a, a gun, a cold gun on set. Those laws changed how many people were required to be on a film set to be managing that rather than just in the case of, let's say, two people, it would go up to about four people that were and and, an extra amount of people that were specialized just in in weapons. We got to run here, but I do want to slip in one more question. Can you see this changing the rules in terms of, you know, no more? Uh, blanks period no more no more anything inside weapons everything is going to be done in the editing bay in terms of sound effects visual effects all that kind of stuff absolutely absolutely i mean you can look at uh, film directors like uh, david fincher who uh famous for the fight club and the social network famous for girl with the dragon tattoo does not use guns with blanks uh, uses composite shots, composite bullets. In this day and age with our technology, nobody needs to die when we, in an accident, when we have the technology 
to fill that in. So that would be the final closing comments that I would say. Stefano, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us and good luck uh, with the movie Subject A. Thank you so much for having me. And again, is Stefano DeFrey, filmmaker and founder of Rosso Films International, based out of New York City. Uh, should mention again that there is going to be a news conference in uh, the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Department and its district attorney regarding last week's fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a, a movie set of the film Rust. Reporter Oscar Wells Gabriel says there were three weapons on location at the time of the fatal shooting. The gun Alec Baldwin ended up firing was one of three that a firearm specialist called an armorer placed on a cart outside the building where the scene was to be rehearsed. An assistant director, Dave Halls, took one of those guns and handed it to Baldwin, declaring in the process that it was safe. No charges have been filed, but they have not yet been ruled out. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Chat about a new book that's out, and it's perfect for young entrepreneurs and veterans of the business world. It's called The 40 Ways of the Fox, and the author is Hamilton business icon Ron Foxcroft. Now, The 40 Ways of the Fox, available at fox40shop.com, is described as an indispensable tool for people navigating the entrepreneurial economy and a handbook for young people and students hoping to fashion a career in business. It's also important to note that net proceeds from the sale of this book are being donated to Liberty for Youth and City Kids. Our guest is Ron Foxcroft. He's the owner of Fluke Transports, the creator of the Fox 40 Whistle, and the author of a new book, The 40 Ways of the Fox. Ron, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I, this is a, a fascinating day. I start the day very early talking to you, my dear friend, and I end the day working an NBA game in Toronto as the replay coordinator at uh, the Scotiabank Arena. So this is a good full, exciting day. Well, you're not Mr. Hamilton for nothing. You are, uh, you know, uh, part of the fabric of this community. You've achieved so much. And a lot of that achievement and advice and tips for young entrepreneurs and and old business people uh, are in this book. Why did you decide to write a book? You know, that was really funny. Uh, My friend, a journalist, Mike Ulmer, uh, who, who has been a journalist, a very accomplished writer for many, many years. And he came into the office one day and he says, you know, your business travels have been very diverse, very exciting, you know, trucking, warehousing, logistics, uh, airports, uh, working uh, Michael Jordan's first game and traveling and, and so on and so on. Very, very diverse. Why don't you tell the story? And, and, you know, one of the questions uh, everybody asks, and we talk a little bit about this in the book, you know, you work so many games everywhere across uh, the world. What's your favorite game? And, and uh, you'll be surprised in the book, I don't have a favorite game. There's, there were just too many. You know, there was the Olympic gold medal game and Michael Jordan's first game. But I do say the toughest games I ever worked was simply in Hamilton. Cathedral against Bishop Ryan. <laughs> I got I got discovered when I was 18 years old when uh, I, I worked Cathedral Bishop Ryan. The coaches were Father Boucher and Father Kennedy, and quite frankly, for the entire game, neither one of those two fellas liked each other. So, uh, you know, all those games that I worked, but uh, the ones that were the toughest and the, the ones that I remember the most were simply in Hamilton, and you know, Rick, I got that moniker, Mr. Hamilton. Everywhere I went in the United States, of course, I was the only Canadian, 
and they would say, where are you from? I would say, I am from Hamilton. And most people didn't know a whole lot about Hamilton, but almost everybody said, oh, yes, the home of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about uh, your favorite game. I would have thought that your favorite game was the game where you blew into a whistle and it didn't work, and that led on to the Fox 40 whistle. Actually, uh, yes. Not really my favorite game, but the most (laughs) memorable one. Actually, it happened twice. It happened at the Montreal Olympics. And, you know, you're not supposed to muck up the Olympic gold medal game. And I I blew my whistle. The P got stuck. Adrian Dantley broke his nose. There was blood all over the place. And on ABC, the announcer says, well, Ron Foxcroft has his hands full in this game. (laughs) Well, then shortly after that, I went to Brazil. And in Montreal, there was 18,000 disappointed fans in Brazil with about nine seconds to go and the score tied against uh, with Brazil. I blew the whistle. The little P got stuck. And, you know, Rick, there's a little bit of difference between an angry crowd in Brazil and an angry crowd in Montreal. And basically, <laughs> I realized they shoot referees in Brazil. Oh, geez. And that was the moment I decided to come home and hire an engineer and work with a scientist and a Ph.D. in sound and spent three and a half years designing the uh, whistle. But in our travels with this book, I get calls. I don't have a gatekeeper, Rick. I answer my own phone. Uh, return my own emails, as you very well know, we communicate. And I get a lot of people saying, you know, I got this challenge in business, and this goes from students, entrepreneurs, veterans. Could I come in and just talk for about 30 minutes? Well, you know, with one month I got 80 such calls. And I thought, you know, 30 minutes times 80, uh, I'm not going to get anything done because, you know, we have Fluke, Fox 40, the airport, uh, the best, cargo airport in canada uh, hamilton john c monroe and uh, so mike almer said well i've got 85 percent of the research done on the book which was really rick a bait and switch he didn't <laughs> <laughs> we spent the next year uh, basically uh replaying relaying stories and adventures and rick I lead the country in mistakes, and I soon realized, A, it's not a mistake if you turn it around and use it as a learning experience. A couple of other things that I've written in this book, you can't ever, don't ever think you can accomplish anything alone. Simply hire people or surround yourself with people that are smarter than you at what they do. And we talk about that a lot in the book. Our guest is Ron Foxroff, the owner of Fluke Transport, creator of the Fox 40 Whistle, and now the author of a new book, The 40 Ways of the Fox. You can get it at fox40shop.com. Why was it important to donate the net proceeds of this book to Liberty for Youth and City Kids? Well, first, Rick, when we decided to tell the stories and the adventures and share all of my mistakes, you know, we could feel volumes about all of I, I As I said, I lead the country in mistakes. But uh, we as a family are very close to Liberty for Youth, Brother Frederick Dryden, City Kids, uh, Reverend Todd Bender. They do such amazing work in Hamilton. You know, Hamilton have the most aggressively caring, friendly, 
generous people anywhere in Canada, and it's personified best at Liberty for Youth and City Kids. We've been in, involved for years with both those organizations. When the panic, when the pandemic hit, Rick, all the charities and most of the charities had serious challenges because, you know, there was no more events, there was no fundraising activities, and we thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to profile City Kids and Liberty for Youth and maybe make a contribution financially to help them get through the pandemic. It is a uh, great initiative. It's an outstanding book, The 40 Ways to the Fox, available now at fox40shop.com. Ron, thank you very much for the time, and good luck with the Pacers and the Raptors tonight at Scotiabank Arena. Always a pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. You got it. Ron Foxcroft, owner of Fluke Transports, creator of the Fox 40 Whistle, and now the author of The 40 Ways of the Fox. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I am El Nino. All other tropical storms must bow before El Nino. Yo soy El Nino. For those of you who don't habla espanol, El Nino is Spanish for the Nino. Oh, gotta love Chris Farley. Yes, ice, snow, sleet, slush, all that fun stuff on the way. It's the start of November, just a handful of days away. And that means two things. Number one, putting your winter tires on because we're coming to the grips with the realization that winter is coming. And Anthony Farnell, Global News Chief Meteorologist, is uh, out with his annual winter forecast. Uh, Anthony, what are we expecting? Well, uh, it's been such a nice fall so far, other than the last couple of days. Uh, I know a lot of people wanting that to continue, but I think it's going to be a sharker, a, a, a stark change compared to even some past years, uh, how fast we turn now into November and especially December to this much colder and, and at times snowy pattern uh, early in the winter before uh, things start to relax just a little bit later on. So I think last year we had a quote-unquote uh, classic winter. Is this is this a classic winter or something a little bit different? Well, I think it's something a little bit different. Uh, like last winter, we're in a La Nina. So uh, Chris Farley was going with El Nino. That's the warm water in the Pacific. This is basically uh, the opposite. So uh, the trade winds are stronger. That causes upwelling, cool water from the depths, and uh, that chilly water there can can affect the jet stream and across canada typically we would see in la nina we would have a lot of cold and snow out west and then meanwhile here around the great lakes southern ontario we end up with uh, a bit of a back and forth but also with a, an active storm track and i think we are going to see a lot of opportunity for snow uh, rain at times and and january and february thaws as well so that's uh, what's important with this winter is I think we're going to start off early. We're going to get quite a bit of snow on the ground ahead of the holidays, cold as well. That could turn severe. And then in late January and especially February, we start to see much above normal temperatures and, and some melting, but but still with, with storms that bring ice and snow as well. So uh, above normal temperatures overall this winter and also above normal snowfall. Interesting to note that this is back-to-back La Niñas. You're calling it a, a double dip, but the two winter forecasts are, are different. So how, how is the La Niña different this year from last year? 
Yeah, so the Lenin, it's, a, it's going into moderate territory. And again, no two Leninis are the same. And, and they're also not a sure thing. And that's what makes these forecasts seasonally quite complicated. It's one aspect. And uh, sometimes it's even week by week. You can say, okay, this is more a classic La Nina setup where you have the jet stream over Alaska delivering the cold out west and, and the storms in the Great Lakes. And, and that can last for a week or two. And then sometimes uh, a different driver takes over where you have a polar vortex maybe coming down where the, the pole is, there's blocking overhead, or or perhaps there's this warm blob that we sometimes talk about in, in the North Pacific that can affect uh, the jet stream in that area. So so there's a lot of different things we look at, and, and one of the best tools we have, other than the improving computer models that we use, are analog years. So, okay, it has been this active a hurricane season, uh, the water temperatures around the globe look like this, what years are similar, and then what happened that winter. And uh, for us, 2007, 2008 comes up uh, pretty high, and that was a very snowy and early start, and uh, and then some, some relaxing later on. You mentioned a couple of terms, including warm blob. How do we get more of that in Ontario? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, in Ontario it would be great. Yeah, no, this has been uh, water out in the Pacific, and uh, it's led to some some milder temperatures in, in places like Victoria, Vancouver. Uh, it also, when you have warm areas, warmer than normal areas over the ocean, like we have now just off the East Coast in the Atlantic, um, and it's helping to fuel that crazy nor'easter that's been lashing Cape Cod and, and New England. But when you have these warm areas uh, for a long period of time, generally they favor sinking air, high pressure, big ridges. So it can tilt the jet stream up and over. And when you have a big ridge out west, you end up with a downstream trough and cold coming right into the heart of the country. And, and that's what we've seen uh, in some past years and, and some notable frigid Februarys that we've had. And I think that may happen for, for a time, but uh, we're not seeing that same blob in the Pacific. Anthony Farnell is our guest. He's Chief Meteorologist at Global News. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you this morning. The other term you used, and we are shuddering at the notion of another polar vortex. What's the likelihood that we're going to see one or two of these? Well, they become more likely. And uh, the big question is, is this uh, solely because of climate change? I mean, they have occurred in the past. And the polar vortex is nothing new. It's, it's generally there all winter long. But with blocking. So when, when we're talking about blocking, we're, we're talking about the Greenland block, big high pressure, warm air up over Greenland. Sometimes it gets all the way to the North Pole and that makes headlines for melting ice in, in January, which, which is scary on, on several levels. But it displaces that polar vortex, all the cold, and brings it into areas that don't typically see it. So last February, we saw all the way down to Texas, just incredible cold and, and they were not prepared for it. Uh, so it's happening more and more frequently. And there are early signs uh, that we're looking at that say that this may happen again this winter, at least a couple times. And it could be as early as late November, December. Aside from uh, warm blobs and polar vortexes, I think the other term that we hate the most during the winter is lake effect. And with a warmer Great Lakes, you're expecting more lake effects now. Yeah, so th- those water temperatures uh, in the Great Lakes, and this is... Uh, it has to do with the fact it's been almost a record October as far as warmth. So those temperatures are running three to five degrees above seasonal, all five of the Great Lakes. 
Now, that could seem like a good thing, and, and initially it will be because when you have warm water and then any cold that comes across will, will tend to moderate, so it won't be as severe here as it would be in, say, Winnipeg, where there's uh, nothing to block it from the, the Arctic. But uh, what happens is that that cold air eventually will, will be deep enough that it, it picks up all of that moisture from the Great Lakes, and we end up seeing these these massive lake effect outbreaks. And, and I think with the contrast in temperature from the cold air to the warm water, we're going to see quite a bit of that. And I mean, if you're in Hamilton, it's a little bit better off than say London or Barrie or some of those typical snow belt areas that I think are, are going to get clobbered on, on a few occasions early this year. Anthony, thanks for the lowdown on the winter forecast. Uh, we will uh, grip our steering wheels a little tighter, getting our, uh, our uh, winter tires on, and uh, we'll just grin and bear it because, hey, it's Canada. Thanks for joining it's us Canada. today. Hey, and uh, you know what? If you're into a winter sport, I think you're going to be happy uh, heading into the holidays this year. Hey, that's some good news. Anthony, thanks for the time. All right, take care. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, joining us here with his winter forecast. There's some highlights and certainly some lowlights. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.